Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, the alter ego of the New Yorker cartoonist B.E.K. is Bruce Eric Kaplan, and he's here to talk about his new memoir, I Was a Child. Critic, essayist, and author Katie Royfe talks to us about her new book, The Violet Hour. David Gessner has written a new book about the American West, All the Wild That Remains. He'll talk about what those of us who care about the wide open spaces are up against, and I'm guessing the answer will be no fun. It's the aridity, stupid. <laughs> I'm already depressed. Laurie, are you depressed? Yes. <laughs> you will be. <laughs> you don't sound depressed for some reason. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the roving editor, the editrix without portfolio. She is the, the mistress of the LARB scene, Lori Weiner. <laughs> That's me. How are you, Lori? I'm well, Seth. How are you? I am okay. And with us, and by us I mean Lori and me, is our usual co-host. He's the founding editor of LARB, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. I'm trying to get ahead of the game, Seth. Let's do the show. If you read The New Yorker, you know him as the cartoonist B.E.K. If you watch TV, he's a writer-producer on the HBO comedy Girls. He's written a memoir called I Was a Child. Bruce Eric Kaplan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So how do you identify? How do I identify? As trans? Or, no, yeah, I mean, yeah. you, do, you do all these <laughs> different things. and what was? I, I think of myself as a, a multi-layered person who has several careers. Well, I'll start talking about the book, since you guys are not talking about the book. Um, I loved it. Culturally, it totally hits my sweet spot. Like, I knew every candy bar, every cereal, like, every TV show, mm -hmm. you know, so that was really fun. But also, this portrait of your parents, which is really kind of... Um, it's moving, you know? And, and I, I feel that uh, my parents were similar in that they went to the suburbs so that we would all be safe. Right. And then they had kind of small lives there. Right. And maybe the, the, the need to be safe was honestly come by. Like, I don't know. I think definitely it's a cultural thing, this idea of like, uh, you know, like, I didn't get the message from my parents that they wanted me, us to stand out in any way. Mm -hmm. Like, I think standing out was sort of seen as like, if, if you try too hard for too much, you could fail or you could get attacked or something bad. Like, right. they, they, they were very much like, you know, just just do as little as, as in public as possible and, you know, and, 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 and. So keep, keep your head down. Yeah, keep your head down. Mm -hmm. But if you're a kid, kind of a budding artist, say, and there's all kinds of things you want to explore and you mm -hmm. want to, you know, then it feels claustrophobic. Yeah, and also they specifically did not want me to pursue a career in the arts. Now, Bruce, <laughs> you did something that no writer has ever accomplished, not Joyce or Fitzgerald or Tolstoy. You That was my goal. I was, <laughs> was kind of trying to no, like and you, swing it for the fans. And, yeah, and, totally. and wait till you hear what it is. Okay. You encompass the entire book in the dedication. And I would love for you to read the dedication because oh. I, I want to hear the, the line reading. Sure. This book is for my parents who tried. <laughs> and that's, that's the whole thing, yeah, really. It's, absolutely. You, you come to this acceptance after much sturm and drang. At what point did you 
develop the attitude that you have now? Was it like on Monday? I'm thinking. <laughs> so the attitude that I have now is acceptance? Yes, is I that... think there's a there's a quan- <laughs> equanimity now that I'm seeing. It's sometimes equanimity and sometimes not. Mm. I can't answer specifically as to when I arrived at this, but sometime in the, in the last few years really decided that they were doing the best that they can. Uh, and we're all doing the best that they can. Uh, we can, or, you know, we're trying. So even if it appears someone isn't doing the best that they can, they actually are. One of the things that I've, I found interesting is we're in the golden age of the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is a, a, a picture book for adults. Um, yes. And, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like you were thinking about the graphic novel as a form at all you're you're just really no it's definitely it's 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 not a graphic novel i mean if you're going to be i think literal about what a graphic novel is which is panels and 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 you know text people saying things with bubbles and Mm -hmm. things like that this is actually a picture book for adults yeah uh it's much closer to you know a kid's book uh what it's really uh a descendant of are these books that Jules Pfeiffer used to do oh, like yeah. in the late 60s early yeah. 70s that I was I loved Jules Pfeiffer and mm-hmm. it was a big influence on me and um I like the form of a picture book for adults um the other part of your career which is TV which uh, you know you've been a huge part of um some of our favorite shows we loved girls from the very first episode mm-hmm. uh, how did you come to be involved with uh, that show and with Lena Dunham who by the way is a big fan of LA review books I told my manager that I wanted to get a job on a half hour cable sh- cable show like 2 weeks later this interview came up the show was girls and so I just went to to Judd's house, Judd uh, Apatow, one of the producers, Jenny Connor, and, and met with Judd, Jenny Connor, and Lena. Erin, my manager, Erin Brown, she had pinpointed Lena as a director she wanted me to meet because she had seen Tiny Furniture. This was probably about a few months before, and I think she had already sent my materials to Lena to just to meet her because she had seen the movie and said, this is someone who you would, you know, really love. You know, it all coalesced for this meeting. And it was actually three minutes from my house. The uh, perfect I, meeting. I, I couldn't believe it. I still, I tell people like you guys, I'm telling you now, I'm still like five years later, it's still like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I got in my car and three minutes later, I was at my meeting. I still can't believe it. I cannot believe it. Amazing how life, life can work sometimes. Once. Yeah. You know, I, I was at a Seinfeld taping. Mm-hmm. They would shoot a scene mm-hmm. and then the entire writing staff would huddle around right. Jerry and the cast and, and, um, and and talk about it, and then you'd all go back to your corners, and uh, and they'd redo the scene with one slightly tweaked joke. Right? Is that the norm? Is that you mean? Is the normal part that you would the writers would huddle after a take to cu- see if to, to, to beat see a if line yeah, in some way? Exactly. I think it's very common. Mm-hmm. And so, are you doing this uh, similar things on with uh, with girls? Yeah, yeah. It's very organic. Like new things happening. You know, sort of. Let's try it in this configuration. Let's get rid of this piece right here. Let's have a new line here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some scenes are very shot as written. And, and some scenes aren't. 
Bruce Girls has such a distinctive tone. At the beginning, how how was that established? Was what was I'm sure there wasn't a written mission statement, or maybe there was, but how did how did Lena Dunham convey her vision to you guys? Because it's been so consistent and so specific mm-hmm. over the five years of the series. Well, I'm thinking. I didn't die. <laughs> we'll put music in there. <laughs> I, I mean, from, from my vantage point, if a show, a TV show comes from a person and is very fully realized by that person, then it's, you know, the show tells you what it wants. The, 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 the characters tell you what they want. Like, it's like if a show, if a person has a very distinct point of view and has a real firm grasp on the characters and the stories, I mean, like, you know, right one, two episodes in, you know exactly what that show is. You got to give Judd Apatow points for shepherding the show. I mean, he he saw something in her very early, and uh, and he does that with a, a lot of other young talent too, doesn't he? I mean, he's really kind of being responsible for the next generation in a, in a sense, do you think? No? Okay. I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't, I'm, I'm sure he is. It's not how my brain looks at things, but mm-hmm. absolutely that... Um, Sure. He's totally shepherding the new generation. I mean, I look at Lena and I think like, who couldn't love her and think that this is someone special who has so much to say? Who's a, So that's why it's hard for yeah. me to, to say like, how, it, didn't everyone who saw the movie feel feel this way? Did anyone see the movie and feel like, eh, who cares about her? <laughs> I'm sure that some people did. But did they? I haven't heard that. Yeah. I'll, I'll find some. No, you do, I do. I, I felt that. I watched her. I thought, oh, this is a, this is a young genius. I actually thought, uh, I felt like I was seeing a persona that is so fully realized, like a Bob Hope. Uh, that's the best example mm-hmm. I know for me it's, growing it's up. It's yeah. a good it example, was like, actually. It is, because I, to, when I was a kid, it was like Bob Hope would come on screen and I'd know exactly <laughs> right. who he was, what he was going to say. Sure. I, was, I loved him so much. I, I, and and I, my, I smiled as soon as I would see his face, no matter what, <laughs> even with the bad 70s specials. <laughs> and so, like, Lena was the same. Like, I saw her and I was like, oh, I know this voice is so itself. Do you want to create a pilot or and, and do your own yes. series? Is that something sure. that interests I'm you? I'm desperately trying all the time. Can you guys help me? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. All right. We'll get you a meeting <laughs> about three minutes from me. Oh, are perfect. You, are you writing one now? Uh, no, not at the moment. I right was... now I'm focused on girls. Uh, just turned in a script. And, you know, the show starts shooting. This season starts shooting in a few weeks. Well, it's such a it's such a fantastic show. Um, you must be incredibly proud of being part of it. It's a, it's a it is a work of genius. We're 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 thrilled about it here, and uh, and thrilled to be able to talk to you about it and about the about the new book. All right, great. Thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's plug it one more time. It's called "I Was a Child." It's by Bruce Eric Kaplan. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure, it's been fun. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour, ninety point seven KPFK FM. Katie Royfe is a critic, an essayist, and an author. Her new book is called The Violet Hour, Great Writers at the End. I loved this book. Let me paraphrase a line from the movie Jerry Maguire, You Had Me at Death. Katie Katie Royfe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So my first question is you did the, you chose six writers, Susan Sontag, Sigmund Freud, John Updike, Dylan Thomas, Maurice Sendak, and James Salter, and you began with Susan Sontag. And I was wondering as I read that chapter, is she beginning the book with a description of how Susan Sontag died because, because it is the worst imaginable way to me 
for someone to die, and then somehow it gets better. Was that, was that in your mind as you structured the book? It definitely is a very harrowing beginning, um, and she had a very harrowing death. I, I wasn't thinking that it would get better, although um, that story to me was very bewildering, and I was kind of hoping as I went along that um, it might get better. But it, I, I thought it was important to start with that one because of how incredible the story is where she just really didn't believe that she was going to die. And, you know, everybody feels that way a little bit. But the um, extreme to which she took that belief was kind of mesmerizing to me. Uh, yeah, I remember when uh, Susan Sontag's son wrote about her death, and I remember thinking, well, oh, well, she's so smart, but she really wasn't wise. And then reading your chapter on her and then going to Freud, and then I was so relieved that Freud was so much wiser. I experienced Susan Sontag's death a little bit as a selfishness, because when you fight, when you fight it so hard, you make it difficult for people who love you. Did, did you feel that way? Well, a lot of people definitely have had that reaction to the chapter that she seems so selfish. And obviously, you know, writers are not known for their um, generosity and, and like living their lives well. Um, Present company so, excluded. Of course. <laughs> exactly. But she, so she definitely, what she did with her commitment, her, her absolute belief that she was going to be the exception and somehow not die uh, in spite of everything the doctors were saying, in spite of being 71 and, you know, in the face of this, you know, completely implausible bone marrow transplant. So she did subject those around her to this belief. And whether you see it as sort of heroic or as selfish, I think kind of depends on how you look at it. And one of the reasons why I tried in each of these chapters to include so many voices and talk to so many people, her son, her friends, et cetera, her housekeeper, her night nurses, is I, re I really wanted to look at that question from a lot of different angles. Yeah, the Salter chapter at the end, um, at first as I was reading it, I thought, this, I, I'm not sure why this is the right chapter for the end of the book. Um, but then the, the, the more I got into, the more I realized that it was the, it is the perfect way to get there, which is he really was not that interested in the question of death. He claimed not to think about it. He claimed to, to not feel very much about the deaths in his life. He was, well, he's he, a complicated character. He definitely claimed that. And to a certain extent, he stonewalled me in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he was right to do so because it was a completely perverse situation I set up. I had decided that after writing about all these people that were dead, I wanted to talk to a live writer who, right. and in my mind, because of his age, and also um, to be fair to myself, because of the elegiac nature of his prose and how obsessed it was with the ending of things, I thought he would be an interesting person to talk to, you know, in his 89th year. And so basically I dragged this poor man out on a beautiful summer day um, to talk to me about death. And his response was kind of, you know, his perplexed, bewildered, kind of World War II era generation thing where he just didn't want to talk about it. You know, and I don't think it's that he didn't think about it. And actually, as the chapter goes on, he reveals that he's been imagining and thinking about death quite a bit. There are many reasons why anyone does a book, and you've talked about some of your reasons for doing this book, including um, your father's own um, very quick death before you were ready for it. But answering some question that we have that may be unanswerable is usually 
part of why one chooses a book. And certainly this is the big unanswerable question that you are pursuing in this. Did you find that it did answer something that you were seeking? Yes, I think that what my idea, well, originally I had this kind of like fake reason I was doing the book. I thought it sounded okay, which is I wanted to understand death. And then I realized that that was wrong and that was a lie. And I just wanted to see deaths. Like I just wanted to come really close in and see how people managed this terrifying to me, unthinkable, unimaginable confrontation. And I did find that when I looked very closely at these deaths, they were bearable and that there was something comforting about the process of it that sometimes when you look at something you're terrified of and you stare at it, you are comforted. And I do think it's important. Virginia Woolf in a gorgeous essay I just taught called On Being Ill Mm -hmm. talks about how she thinks illness should be like the subject for literature. Why isn't there more literature about illness since it's so important to us it's just not as sexy as like marriage or betrayal or adultery or a lot of the other things that we like to write about and I feel a little bit about this subject that it is fascinating and and I do also think people are starting to write I'm noticing a million books about it now you know you have a memoir that when breath became air you have Um, Charles Bach has a novel about his wife dying of cancer, based on his wife dying of cancer coming out. So I um, find that it's definitely that cultural moment. All right. The book is The Violet Hour. Katie Royfe, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. David Gessner is an environmentalist and the author of several books. His new one is called All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. David Gessner, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So being from New York, the American West is a very big idea. It's John Ford, it's cattle drives, it's mythic landscapes, it's all these Zane Gray visions. In 2016, what's the American West? Wow, you, you start with hard ones. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I can do you one better. I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts. So for me, the West started when I drove west at 30 and saw the Rockies, and as I say in the book, had John Denver come on, I would have warbled along with, with the music. And it still is that emotional, you know, uh, moment of seeing the seeing the big mountains and seeing big country. That still exists, and that's the interesting thing to me. I had a young environmentalist in Seattle ask me, "How can you walk out in this stuff without being depressed and think about climate change?" And I kind of looked at him because I can, you know, I, I can be of two minds. And driving around and, of course, using fossil fuel during the book tour for this trip and for the trip itself, it was depressing at times to see some parts of the modern West, the beetle kill, the lack of snowpack, the the aridity, but it was also still startlingly beautiful and huge. Absolutely. And and those, you know, like driving from New Mexico to Utah, I'm just, I I think if you haven't done it, I'm going to actually take my 19-year-old nephew out west for the first time this summer, 
is still mind-blowing and mind-enlargening in a way. Well, as you point out in your book, uh, neither Stegner nor Abby was from the West. And uh, you, you know, I mean, to be an outsider is often to see something more clearly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Abby wasn't from the West, and he, of course, in typical Abby fashion, compares seeing the mountains to seeing a naked girl. So that's, you know, that's the crude... Well, who doesn't think uh, of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, before we get too far into it, Wallace Stegner and Edward Abbey are, these days, not that widely read, really. I mean, among specialists in schools, certainly, but perhaps you could do a thumbnail of who Wallace Stegner and Edward Abbey were. Sure, and I can actually tie it into the previous question, too. Because, though, uh, Stegner wasn't born in the West... By the time he was two, he was moving all around the West. And considering he was born in 1909, this was a just past the you know frontier West. And he moves from Utah to Montana to Saskatchewan, and he gets formed kind of this way. He actually forms himself against the cliche of the American West. We think of you know the boomers who are going to a place and striking it rich for oil or or even agriculture. And Stegner saw that and he hated it. He hated the rootlessness of it. And he was a great believer in nesting. And he was a great reader. And there were no books when he got taken from town to town by his boomer dad. So he got aggressively into reading when he finally moved to Salt Lake City. And he, um, through luck, got into this the Iowa writing program right when it started. Wow. And what came out was the workaholism that his dad had shown on the frontier he shows as a writer, and he just produces a stream, like firehose stream, of novels, biographies, of uh, essays, and ends up moving east, teaches at Harvard, and then gets the job and founds the Stanford Creative Writing Program. And he's the father of so many Western writers, including Larry McMurtry, and including Ed Abbey, who has one line, only one line about Stegner in his journals, and it's he has the most distinguished looking bags under his eyes. So, so Abby. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I'm trying <laughs> for that now. And so Abby comes along, and Abby is the kind of person Stegner hates. This, he didn't like hippies at all because he grew up without culture. And so he kind of romanticized culture and didn't like the 60s, thought they ruined Stanford. Mm-hmm. And Abby comes along, he's this bearded, shaggy, anti Stegner figure. But what they had in common is the land. Because Abby writes these early kind of clunky novels, then writes this beautiful Walden-like book called Desert Solitaire, celebrating Arches National Park before there are people there. Great lines like, um, on this bedrock of animal faith, I take my stand. He lives in a little trailer, looks out back at his 200,000-acre backyard, drinks coffee, smokes a cigar. So it's just a celebratory book about loving being alone and being relaxed. You know, Stegner's this workaholic. Abby's this loafer, basically. And then Abby sees people destroying the place he loves, the American West. And so he starts monkey wrenching and and basically brings the term into popularity. He puts sugar in gas tanks. He pulls up um, uh, surveyor stakes. He cuts down billboards. And he really does this as well as writes about it in Monkey Wrench Gang, the famous book. So those were his two big books. Well, as you said, this Stegner didn't like the hippies. The hippies didn't like Stegner either. Um, the, <laughs> no. hippie, the hippies did like Abby. Uh, but nowadays, it's hard. It's it's equally, it's the same. You, you, you like Stegner in 1950. You like Stegner now. It's, it's exactly. He's the, kind of the same guy. Abby is hard to like these days. 
For some people, he is. It's amazing. I, I, I disagree a little with the notion that they're not read, because certainly in the interior West, people are still reading Abbey. Now, I just did a talk in Tucson where I've got, of course, the this guy hates women and Mexicans question. Yeah. And as I say which, in the which book, one, which, which one was that? Fair enough. <laughs> Both. <This is> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and certainly, I mean, there's a little bit, you can defend him a little bit in that he was innately hyperbolic. He was like Thoreau who said, I talk loudly because everyone else is hard of hearing. He's trying to tease you and jolt you and bug you. Um, so that's a little bit of a defense. But as Luis Urea, uh, Chicano writer, great friend of mine, would say, has said, to support Abby, and he still loves Abby, you have to do backflips and rationalize. Because yes. a lot of what he says is somewhat Trump-like and, and troubling. Yes. But troubling. He, but one thing that's one thing where I think he can still make his stand and, and make a claim for sticking around for a long time is the essayist voice on the page. The fact that in a single page you can hear him wax poetic about a juniper tree, you can have him quote Thoreau, you can have him, as I say, make a fart joke or a bumper sticker joke, you can have him be irritable and joyful, and he really gets across the human, the sense of a human being on the page. And I love, I always think of Emerson's line about Montaigne, cut his sentences and they bleed. Mm. And that's what I get from Abby, is I, he's still alive to me in that way. Um, but there's lots of problems with Abby, no doubt. The young writers today, they can't not look at things like the aridity because sure. they know that this is the world that they're inheriting and they understand what all the myths uh, the, right. of the West, of the West, um, how it led to the current situation in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. are, but are, are you seeing in these young, any young writers that you're excited Joe about? Joe Wilkins is a writer. I okay. don't know if you know his work. Uh, mm -hmm. He's kind of known within the, the environmental literary community, but he's a great uh, writer in the Stegnerian tradition. Um, Craig Childs, you might know his stuff. He does more um, experimental stuff. I, I guess um, my friend Camille Dungey, even though she, she was in San Francisco and moved uh, to Colorado, I don't know how Western her work is, but she brings an African-American perspective to, to uh, nature writing. So there's, there's interesting stuff being done. It's funny, though, it would be cliche for us to just say, to repeat kind of Stegner's stuff about, you know, the boomers, nesters, but it's not, it's still not common vocabulary. I mean, I think the closest we got to it becoming common parlance is last summer's beginning with the drought. You know, government people were suddenly talking like Stegner, and that was exciting, you know. Uh, I mean, I just drove down through... Um, Many, many trees and little water. <laughs> and, and really was thinking of Stegner the whole way. Because he really saw it as, as aridity being the central fact. And in his time, the importation of humid land habits, of eastern habits, into a place that would not support them, the West. And not, you know, so many people who come here think, well, this is, you know, just a little different than New Jersey or Pennsylvania. And it isn't. It's it's fundamentally different, and it's it requires different ways of being. And and I think that was a little bit of an eye opener. There are bigger eye openers to come, by the way, <laughs> soon enough. All right, the book is all the while that remains. David Gessner, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks to Katie Royfe, Bruce Eric Kaplan. Thanks to David Gessner. Thanks to our producer in Moral Conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Oraliano, czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld, 
and associate producer Jim Lane. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter, should you be moved to do so. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.